This is a Mortarbox Media Podcast. For more podcasts and to learn how we can help you create your own, visit mortarboxmedia.com. This episode and every episode of Madison Story Slam is sponsored by Ale Asylum. This episode is also sponsored by Resolution Health Collaborative. Thank you, Ale Asylum, and thank you, Resolution, for believing in what we do. Hey, welcome once again to the Madison Story Slam podcast, where we feature true stories told by real people based on a theme. Thank you for tuning in. Please hit the subscribe button on the podcast app of your choosing. While you're there, leave a rating and a review for us. Maybe you're using iTunes or Apple Podcasts app. Anywhere that you can leave a rating or a review, that really helps us and it helps people find the podcast and listen to it. And reviews help me know what you like and maybe what you're not liking about the show. And we can together make it something we can all enjoy. Also, if you could go to patreon.com slash madisonstoryslam, you can be a part of this and helping us produce it. Uh, but mainly, I want to tell you about the GoFundMe that we're doing right now. We want to take our live events and live stream video uh, of, the, of the events and put that out on the internet so we can grow our audience and more people can be a part of the community that we are building. I am so proud of this community and love it so much. I'm so glad to be a part of it. You guys are, you know, you guys make the community happen. And uh, I'm so glad that you let me be a part of your community. Um, So we need to raise about $2,500. Right now, we have raised a couple hundred dollars, a few hundred dollars. So we've got a little bit, you know, to go. I think this one's going to be a slow burn. We did one a while back where we needed a new computer and we raised about $1,500 in uh, maybe a little over two weeks. I don't think that's going to be the case on this one, but we're hoping by January of 2019 that we will have raised the funds and that January's Story Slam will be the debut of live streaming video of Story Slam. So if again, if you want to help out on the GoFundMe, the website is gofundme.com slash storyslamlive live. If you can't contribute, maybe you could take that link and share it on your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever feed you have so that more people can see it. All right. Then the last thing, Saturday, September 15th, we're back with more Story Slam events at the Wilmar Center. The theme is transformation. So come tell or hear or whatever. Just We're going to have great stories and you should come and experience them or tell them. That's what I'm trying to say. This episode is from our July Story Slam event. That's right. You heard me. We normally take the summer off, but Rabinia Courtyard in Madison, Wisconsin wanted us to come and do some outdoor Story Slams. So in June and July, we did them there. The June recordings didn't turn out, but July's did. So this is going to be a selection of the best stories that we had at some of our first outdoor summer story slams. We were really happy to have it there. John over at Robinia and Chad, they were great to us. And uh, in July, we actually raised money for a, a family of a firefighter who passed away, and it was really good. All right, thank you again for tuning in. I'll stop rambling so that we can get on to the stories. This is a story about how I got lost in my own Scandinavian fantasy. So I've always been obsessed with everything Scandinavian, whether it was Vikings, just the cold Nordic weather, all of that good stuff, the fashion, the aesthetic. But growing up in central Pennsylvania, there wasn't really a whole lot of opportunity to experience that aesthetic. When I was in college, I had the chance to study abroad, though, and I was able to go to Sweden, and I was super excited because it was finally going to be my opportunity to experience the Scandinavian lifestyle. So the summer before I went, I did a lot of research. I wrote down all of these addresses of cool places that I wanted to check out and things that I knew that I was going to need to do when I first landed there. And I took the long flight over, and I'm very conscious about being, like, an ugly American when I travel. Like, I don't want to assume everyone speaks English. I want to try to fit in as much as possible. So I was definitely a little self-conscious as well when I first got there. And I ended up getting to my student corridor after checking in. It was a corridor that I shared with 11 people, uh, which was quite a bit. But I looked around, and it was pretty desolate, right? I didn't have any blankets. I didn't have towels. I didn't have cooking supplies. 
And so I thought to myself, well, where is the one place in Scandinavia that I can go to get all of my housewares? And that would be the institution known as IKEA Furniture. Woo, yeah. I had never been to an IKEA before, so I was both extraordinarily excited, but also completely nervous. Uh, I was like, well, I hope I can get everything there. They tell me that this is the place I should go. So before I had even come to Sweden, I had written down the address for IKEA and how to get there. I got my little bus pass, and the second day that I was in Sweden, I went ahead and went straight to the IKEA on the bus. And I didn't really know what to expect. If anyone's been to an IKEA, you know it's a giant store full of everything you can imagine. It's mystical, it's magical. And I walk in the front door, and all I see is one escalator going straight up, up to the heavens, so it seemed. And, and I was like, well, uh, I guess that's my path. And I hop on the escalator, and it takes minutes, perhaps hours, to get to the top. I don't remember. Uh, and I'm dumped out onto this beautiful showroom of all of the Scandinavian furnishings, all set up in realistic ways, and I am just in awe. But there's something to remember about IKEA showrooms, and it's they're built like a labyrinth. Uh, there is no straight path, like a traditional department store. We can kind of just walk straight and see things from side to side. No, no. There are lefts, there are rights, there are catty corners, there are turns. And in addition to this, there are signs. But all of those signs in Sweden are in Swedish. And I do not speak Swedish. So I'm wandering pretty aimlessly through this entire store, and I start to notice that there are things that I actually would like to buy. I remember walking into a kitchen area and seeing like a table set, and I picked up this fork, and I was like, man, what a great fork. I would love to buy this fork. However, when I looked around, there was nowhere for me to pick up said fork to purchase it. So this added to my overall anxiety. And I also didn't want to ask anyone for help because I didn't want to be that ugly American only speaking English. And I didn't know whether everyone spoke English or not. Spoiler alert, Swedes are great at English. Instead, they were just like little mythical beings that would like pop out of the labyrinth and kind of like disappear without helping me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> So in total, in this showroom, as I'm weaving between the bathrooms and the kitchens and the closets, I probably opened every cabinet, I touched everything, and I was desperately just trying to find all of the stuff that I could buy. I probably spent about three hours in the showroom alone. <laughs> yeah. So I was lost beyond imagine. When I finally rounded one corner, I was greeted by a sort of divergence of paths. One way led to this little restaurant. Now, I was also bewildered because why is there a restaurant and a furniture store? But that's Ikea for you. And I could smell the Swedish meatballs and everything was just joyous and lovely. And then to the left, there was an escalator straight down. Now, it seemed like it was just going down into nothing, into the pits of hell for all I know. I couldn't see anything beyond it. And there was no up staircase, there was no up escalator. And so I thought to myself, as empty-handed as I was after three hours of scouring the IKEA showroom, what if this is the exit? What if this is the end of my journey and I have nothing to show for it? But I decided to go ahead and go down anyway, because I noticed that there were several people just kind of weaving their way right by comfortably and confidently going down the escalator. So I went on down. And to my amazement, there are just shelves and shelves of stuff down there. Now, I learned this, that this is the way of Ikea, apparently. You do the showroom thing, you get bewildered, you get flummoxed, you get inspired, and then you go down, you actually pick up stuff to buy. So it took me another two hours to go through that entire process. I kept picking up things, and then I'd get further down and be like, oh, this doesn't match the thing that I picked up an hour ago, so I should go back and color coordinate again. Uh, and this part was a little fun, but I was getting pretty tired. And I finally got all the way through, and these automatic doors opened, and the warehouse, like dwarven caves, were just before me. And it was very quiet, and I was kind of tiptoeing my way through, and I was hoping I was toward the end. And I see a bunch of kind of cashiers and, and lines starting to form in front of me. And I'm tremendously relieved, but this means that there's another anxiety that I have to confront, which is talking to people. Uh, so there is this very attractive young man at the register, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, very stereotypically Swedish. And he greets me with a hey, hey, which is hello in Swedish, which 
You know, I knew enough to say, hey, back. And he asks me a question to which I have no idea how to reply. And I just kind of stare at him like a deer in the headlights. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, you speak English in the most perfect accent. <laughs> and that is the moment I learned that a lot of Swedes can speak English quite well. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And we start chatting about the fact that I'm a student and I've just arrived, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes ahead and he rings up all of my items, which was hundreds of hundreds of dollars of uh, Ikea furniture for my very small apartment. And he looks at me and he says, oh, do you have the Ikea family card? And I look at him and I say, well, funny enough, this is my first time in an Ikea ever. So no, I don't. And he pulls out a form that's obviously all in Swedish, and he starts talking to me about all the benefits and all the things, and he sees my eyes kind of glaze over, and he says, I'm just going to give you the discount. You can sign up the next time you're here. <laughs> and so I smile, and I take my bags of my blue Ikea stuff out of the store with me, and I smell the crisp Scandinavian air, and I feel like I've just been on a journey, you know? Like I've survived my first Ikea experience in a completely different country. And you would think, as traumatic as this was, that I probably wouldn't return, you know? Like, that was quite a, a travel and a, quite a way for all of my supplies. But I became sort of an IKEA wayfinder for all of my other international friends who had not been there yet. And ultimately, I, I did get a chance to try the Swedish meatballs, and they are worth it. Would highly recommend. But that's the story of how I kind of got lost, but kind of ended up in a really, really happy place. Thanks, all. Thank you, Amelia. Uh, it's fun to play hide-and-seek in Ikea. Uh, just so you know, if, if nobody's tried. Uh, our next storyteller is somebody who's been to quite a few story slams. I believe two years ago was her first time at a Madison story slam, and she did a great job. So I'm expecting great things. Please give it up for Charlie Rowe. Pressure. <laughs> Expectative pressure. Hi. So tonight's theme is lost. And I decided to talk to you about a little girl that was often nicknamed Charlie Brown. Not by her choice, it just kind of seemed to fit. But Charlie Brown really did not pay attention to things around her. She didn't watch signs that told her which way to go. Like, stay away from those people over there that are doing those things that your mama told you not to, right? She didn't read that sign. Once you get off track, it's really easy to stay off track because the signs come quicker and quicker and they kind of seem to be going at an angle already. And so little Charlie Brown got lost. If you've ever heard any of her experience, there's a lot of things about people that within themselves help them get back on course or stay off course. There's a lot of things in me that... Um, kind of lean towards that gravelly side of the road anyhow because it's pretty over there in the field and I've been going this way for a really long time and so sometimes we change our own trajectory. So already missing a few of the early road signs, this little girl kept going and going and what is really funny about once you get lost, you kind of, kind of get this point where you just have to admit that you're freaking out. I, I'm Charlie Brown. I reached that point where I just kind of freaked out and I kind of said, none of these maps work. I don't like the system. I don't like how you're going to process me. And if I follow all of these steps and all of these road signs, you're telling me that I will end up over there where I want to be. Sometimes it doesn't work. So I found within myself a resourcefulness along the way where I learned how to do things that didn't fit. I learned how to take the things that I found along the way or the things that were given to me or I learned how to go back really quick and pick up something that somebody else took from me and put it back where it went so that I could use all these little tools to build my own way. So I am at that point two years later if you were here for a little backstory. Two years later, I was standing here, just driving back in Madison, Wisconsin, after getting out of a 15-year abusive relationship, some really tough medical things, and two kids in tow. Got here with $200. Well, after gas and hotels. But 
I have learned what it is really like to be lost. And I have learned that one of the most beautiful things about being lost is once you say, I don't want to go anywhere anymore, you get to look all around you and decide exactly which way you want to go and how to get there. All right, our next storyteller I've never heard a story from, but I think I saw you at that thing that one time about stories. I never met you But weren't you at that church thing about telling stories? Oh, word. Yeah, I saw you there. Yeah. <laughs> never met me. <laughs> Please put your hands together for Matthew Charles. I like your enthusiasm. Uh, okay, uh, I thought this was like a, poetry thing, so I came with some spoken word. So I hope that's okay. <clears throat> Y'all gonna have to snap though instead of clap. Yup. Alright, so, uh, <clears throat> like a deadbeat dad meeting his bastard teenage son for the first time, I'm confronting my past like, I left you for a reason, and yes, I created you, but you've taken on a life of your own, and you should know I am proud of you. Matter of fact, actually, I doubted you. I neglected to see the power you held over me. It's so menacing. I grimace in remembrance of the perilous paralysis that froze my body inch by inch at the sight of a brother who possessed the temperament of a light bulb. One minute he's on with a smile like the sun. And with the flip of a switch, he's going off in a fit of untamable rage quenched solely by exhaustion, but that's bipolar for you. But that's bipolar for you. One early autumn morning in our shared bedroom, I ask him, Curiosity eclipsed by wonder. How do you deal with the hurricane of unrelenting, unpredictable chaos inside of you? And he replied with an answer of childlike simplicity characteristic of him shrugging, saying, it's a new day, I move on. And that had me flabbergasted as my thoughts unraveled faster, like, shoot, I can't imagine that. And I couldn't until the day I was feeling filled with pain and I let my memories erode, define my inner senses. My innocence resembled an angel wearing a shattered halo with clipped wings and low self-esteem, exhaling marijuana smoke. I defer my tendencies to past mechanisms that were helping me cope. And I pray that I'm changing now, because if a caterpillar don't become a butterfly, that's failure, how I perceive it. And I got reasons that stem from stories, so when I tell it, you better be all ears. It was my twin and my mama on the carpet floor of her bedroom. He straddled her like a UFC fighter, ground and pound, fists balled, hitting and hurling spitballs at a tear-stained face, flushed a desperate shade of red reserved for moments like this. Moments in recognition that a mother shouldn't have to beg her son for mercy. He shouldn't be the punisher and we shouldn't be afraid of him. But when you're terrorized in your own home, you could leave it and still feel the dimming of your soul's glow. It's a pain I don't want to have to carry around no more. But I'm used to it like turns to a driver on a closed course. My instinct is to hide like Jekyll, my flesh under hard shell, because I prefer to not be the center of every eye's attention. Unless I'm on stage, in which case I'm obliged. I think I write sad stories because people like to listen. I'm a father to a past guilty of everything I advised against, but how long can I survive thinking I'm the victim? Oh, Lord, I prayed for a savior, and you sent him in the form of the word. The wounds I wore like tattoos show a picture of war. The heart and mind, constant strife. I once let take control, but no more. This is my affirmation. And though they may loom over me like giants, I, like David, aligned with the divine on a quest for self-actualization, will build a house upon the same rock I slingshot at God's speed towards any giant that opposes me. Now, I got one more story for you, so we're just going to transition right into that. Uh, back before, and I never performed this in front of people, so y'all getting a treat. Back before cell phones were the prime cultural connectors. That's back before my city was accepting. I was just another other in a place where we normalized hate. The Hispanics, they were beaners, and I was a nigger, and everybody was a fag even if you weren't gay. That's where I come from. There were certain monoliths in which they lumped us. We were caged, conscious we couldn't break all these chains off us, so our eyes were watching God like Zora Neale, and he ain't present. Maybe because to him, I just don't appeal. That's a lesson learned as an eight-year-old at a church function construction site. Micah, the son of the white family we had assisted, pointed to his toolbox and said, go get me a hammer, nigger. And my stomach was wrung like wet rags as I was filled with hurt, and I know how to express that. So I went to my mama, feeling violated, and she patted me on the back, saying in a tone conveying both total absolution of him and total ignorance of that moment's seminal detrimental impact on me. It's okay, Matthew, go back to work. So I did. 
But that moment in hindsight was a seedling for me associating whiteness with being unsafe and my family being people I can't relate to and Christ being just a tool to keep me and my people in place. How can I forgive the sins of a white woman, my parents, who ain't no better? When it's apparent that good intentions are never good enough and sometimes you just gotta know better. So I'm wrestling with insufficiency. My own and how you communicate it. Like, do I have a license to feel? Do I have the right to be hurt and not rush right to being healed? Like, can I just sit in this? And why do you expect me to deal with my pain like whack-a-mole? Just push it down. That ain't practical, but it's what you non-verbally ask of me. So the hurt, the hurt clusters like stars, so grand and unapproachable. I have to place whole solar systems between us just to cope. But how can the universe escape itself? Doesn't it know? Don't you know you were made to be whole and harmonious, a reflection of God himself? You do yourself a disservice, you who believe the lies of less value. But the sheer dominance of non-belonging, overarching and iconic as the St. Louis Ark, had my heart like the hands of guitar players, calloused. You rubbed me wrong too many times until I accepted you in resignation, rejecting community. And then, and then one night I had a dream, I'd attained some sort of success. People were showing interest. And when they lost interest, it felt like my value dropped off a cliff deep into watery depths to find its home in Atlantis. A city like my own conceptions of self-worth, worth finding, but maybe buried forever. Mired by myth, like maybe worth is white, and maybe worth ain't mine, and maybe I'm just a nigger that Mike can name me, and belonging is reserved for king's dreams with rhetoric like Reaganomics. Maybe it'll trickle down somehow, and maybe, just maybe, I could collect it like the rainwater, because I am being destroyed by my inability to believe in belonging. So, my dear non-belonging, in this barefoot homage to hallowed ground, every step I've taken is in opposition to your dominance now. And I, unlike Moses in the presence of a god in flame bush, will do no such thing as mumble in fear because I forfeited nothing but my limits to come here. I forfeited nothing but my limits to come here. I forfeited nothing but my limits to come here. And I belong here. Resolution Therapeutic Massage has actually changed their name to Resolution Health Collaborative, but they are still an established massage therapy clinic in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, specializing in custom massages. Their therapeutic approach is ideal for student athletes, traveling professionals, top performers, and anyone who needs their body and mind to be at peak condition. The therapist at Resolution will evaluate your muscle response and select the best technique for your tailored massage. Clients often experience relief from acute pain after one session and relief from chronic pain after three sessions. Packages for ongoing support are available at a discounted rate. Along with changing the name, Resolution has changed locations. They've got a bigger space, more stuff to offer, and you can find them now at 345 West Washington Avenue in Madison, Wisconsin. Again, that's 345 West Washington Avenue. Call 608-443-7048 to set up your first appointment today. And if you mention Madison Story Slam, you get a discount. Thank you, Resolution, for believing in what we do at Madison Story Slam. And thank you, listeners, for supporting Resolution Health Collaborative. Now, a quick confession. I forgot to hit record during this. So let's join a story from Mel Hammond, already in progress. We strapped ourselves into the same seatbelt and drove from Ohio to Kentucky to a caving convention called Karsarama. And we had a tent. We had sleeping bags, and we had our food for the weekend, which Dakota's dad had packed for us. It was one tray of Hawaiian rolls, a loaf of bologna, and a 12-pack of vanilla Coke. That was all we had for the whole weekend. Um, and we set up camp with a bunch of other caving enthusiasts from Kentucky and Ohio. And um, it was going to be two nights and three days of hanging out with other cavers, um, exploring some caves, and doing some other fun stuff that we didn't even really know what it was gonna be. So, Dakota and I are super psyched to go into our first cave. And we have an advantage over 
basically everyone else at this caving convention because we are 14 and 15 years old and we are tiny and we're with a bunch of adults who are bigger than us. So we can fit through a lot of crevices um, that other people can't and we're really speedy and we are young so we don't have fear. So we, um, we put on our caving clothes. Uh, caves are about 53 degrees in Kentucky, so you want long pants and a couple layers on top and um, some knee pads and always a helmet with a headlamp um, and gloves so that you don't uh, get your hand oils on the, the stalactites and things like that. So we're all decked out in our caving gear and we crawl into a cave with our designated group, all adults, um, plus one caving guide who is familiar with the cave. And we're crawling through the cave. Dakota and I are super excited, exploring, splashing around in the mud. Um, and we explore this one tunnel and we get to kind of a, a crossroads in the tunnel. And the cave guide says to us that we are in the palm of a hand right now. And it's this, this small little room and we're all huddled up inside. And from this little room, there are five little tunnels that extend like a thumb and four fingers. And he says we can all put our packs down and then explore the fingers. They don't go very far. Um, so we can just explore each one and then we'll all meet back in the middle. So the adults break into groups and they go explore the fingers. And Dakota and I go off on our own finger that no one else is exploring. And we, we've left our packs. Um, and we crawl into the finger and we're going to the back, crawling through the mud. And we get to what we think is the back. And we're about to turn around when our headlamps flash against the, the back wall and uh, I notice a shadow that makes it look like there might be a little crevice um, farther than we think that the tunnel goes. So we go, into, go to investigate and it turns out there is a little hole you can slip through and climb through and squeeze through and um, we shimmy our way through there and turns out it opens to this huge long tunnel that's like, kind of like, um, imagine two tunnels on top of each other, like a number eight, but connected in the middle. And at the bottom of the number eight is a river running. And we climb up on the top part of the number eight and with our hands and feet can kind of climb along um, the, the rock and um, go through the tunnel without getting our feet wet at the bottom. So we are thrilled because we have discovered a new cavern that the cave guy did not mention at all. This is way past the finger that he described. It's like the longest fingernail in the world, like bigger than the Guinness Book of World Records longest fingernail. So we are climbing through this long, long tunnel and it's meandering left and right like a, like a river. And we keep climbing and climbing and um, we start to get a little nervous because we were all supposed to explore the fingers and then meet back in the middle. But the cave guy did not explicitly state a number of minutes that we were allowed to be gone. So we weren't technically breaking any rules. And the thrill of exploration just pushed us onward. So we kept climbing and climbing, climbing with the river running beneath us. After about 20 minutes, Dakota gets a little nervous. She's like, I think we should head back. They're probably worrying about us. And I am just so pulled by this sense of adventure. We have to figure out where this tunnel goes because it's not getting any smaller. If anything, it's getting bigger and the amount of water is, is getting larger and faster. And so I push us onward and we keep exploring and we keep crawling down this tunnel. After about half an hour, I admit that yes, we should probably turn around. And we're both getting a little scared, mostly at the fact that we are gonna be in big trouble when we get back. So reluctantly, we turn around and we crawl, we crawl, we crawl through the tunnel, meandering back towards the palm of the hand. And when we get closer, we hear adults calling into the tunnel, Melissa! Dakota, 
And when we shimmy through that tiny little space at the base, at the tip of the finger, um, there are people on the other, other side, and they're waiting for us. And they say, thank God. And people have their packs strewn out, and um, people have disheveled hair and worried looks in their eyes. And Dakota's dad especially looks so relieved and annoyed and awkward because it was his kid and friend who made this whole group of people worry for so long. And they said, we thought you were lost, and none of us were small enough to get through that crevice, which we didn't even know was there, um, and we were terrified that you were going to be trapped in there. And we're like, dudes, we're fine. We just want to explore the tunnel, and now we don't even know where it goes. So we're kind of on thin ice, and we're feeling a little guilty, and also like, oh, man, we wanted to explore the tunnel, and no one knew where it went. And so, spoiler alert, we never found out where it went. Um, so we're on thin ice with all these grown-ups who are like, oh, look at these jokers, 14 and 15-year-olds. They're just getting into trouble. So we go back to camp where everyone set up their tents, and the roles are suddenly reversed when alcohol is involved. Because as soon as alcohol is involved, all these grown-ups turn into the kids, and Dakota and I are the reasonable ones. And... Um, the, the cave convention organizers have set up these straw bales in a square and then thrown a tarp, a big, huge tarp, over the straw bales. And they have cooked gallons and gallons and gallons of ramen noodles, and they've put them in trash cans, and they have dumped the ramen noodles into the tarp, and people are slathering themselves in soap and wrestling in the noodles. And they are all drunk. Dakota and I have never been around so many drunk people in our lives. And they are children. There is a, a woman, probably like 40 years old, and the whole time, every three minutes, she shouts, Take off your pants. I want to see real noodles. And so these, if anything, can dissipate this awkwardness that has been hanging in the air since Dakota and I explored the secret tunnel. It is adults getting drunk and then wrestling in noodles. So Dakota and I put on our swimsuits, we slather ourselves in soap, and then we wrestle each other in the pit of noodles. Looking back, it is, I am very uncomfortable by the number of men who were watching me as a teenage girl wrestle in noodles with a friend in my bathing suit. But at the time, I was having a blast. There was a woman yelling at us, take off your pants, I wanna see real noodles. But um, at the end of the day, neither of us won the wrestling match because we were equally matched. We had a great time, and the adults were too drunk to really remember much about the day. Thanks. Thank you, Mel. I just have one thing to say about that story. Take off your pants, we wanna see real noodles. <laughs> Our next storyteller got his nickname as a young man throwing meat on stage at musicians. Please put your hands together for Marty the Meat Man Sosnowski. That was awesome. Hey, Mel, where is that place? I want to go there, man. I'm serious. That's a new bucket list thing right there. God, are you kidding me? I got props tonight, ladies and gentlemen. You in the back, you guys should come up. You guys should come up. This is storytelling. This isn't a Motorhead concert. I want to see if you're giving me the finger or if you're laughing. You know, last time I was here, I offended somebody. So I'm going to try really hard not to do that tonight, and I came up with this great idea. I got my penalty jug. So every time that I cuss, I'm going to put a dollar in here, and the proceeds can go to the benefit that we're here for tonight. Now, I'm not a rich man, so I'm going to try to keep this under control, but if you know me, I'm probably going to end up putting a couple dollars in here. But I'm going to try not to offend anybody, but I got a big wad of money just in case. So, since tonight isn't a judged competition, I'm not going to follow the theme, fuck the theme. And there's my first dollar. There you go. And I challenge any of the other storytellers to come up here that you can enter the penalty jug challenge and maybe even just throw a couple words in there just in case. 
So since we have to go fast, we have a lot of storytellers, I'm going to make this as quick as I can. My story tonight is about a great man that I met. Since we're celebrating a great man's life, I want to tell a story about a great man that I met. And it was about a year ago, this time of year, that I went to my very first storytelling conference. And I was invited to this conference by a friend of mine from the United Nations who was always trying to get me to learn more about storytelling and try to take my storytelling to the next level. So I went to this conference, not knowing much about these conferences, what was going to happen. But I see that they were going to have one session on humor and storytelling, and they were also going to have a story slam. So I'm like, sweet, I'm in. So I joined this group. It's the Wisconsin Storytellers. I get to the, I get to the event, and... I, I got there early, didn't know, I don't know anybody at this thing, so I get there early, I sit down. The first person that comes up to me is a storyteller by the name of Tracy Chapman, and this girl is hot. I'm, I mean, she just is. And it's really cool because she's my age, and you don't meet a lot of people, you know, I mean a little over 30, but you don't meet a lot of people my age that are, and I look, and she's not wearing a ring, and she comes up, she's talking to me, and I can tell she's a really good storyteller. And I'm going like, wow, this is, kind of, this is going good so far. And so in the day and age of the Me Too movement, you know, I'm going to be really cool, and I'm going to ease my way into this, but this girl's hot. And I go, I got to find out she's not wearing a wedding ring. I got to find out more about this girl. Well, the very next person that talk, comes up to me is the person that the story's about, and I call him the magic man. And he walks up to me, and he goes, I'm Art. And he goes, what's your name? And I'm like, my name's the meat man. And I was going to shake his hand, and it became very obvious to me really quick that Art had some disabilities he was dealing with. And he, he couldn't really shake his hand because he was kind of like doing this, you know. And he's, and he's like, you know, and I'm Art. And I'm like, wow, you know. I really thought that he had cerebral palsy. I really did. That was my first impression. And I just thought, wow, this poor guy. Somebody must have brought him to the storytelling thing just to, just to have him keep busy. And I was so mad that that was my first impression, that he wasn't there as a storyteller, that he was there as somebody brought him to be nice to him or something on that order. And so right away, the conference is starting, and we all get into this big group. We all have to introduce ourselves and all this. And so, okay, we do that. So the first session comes up when they're going to have the humor and comedy. And the lady that's running the show tells me that the fucking... Oh, <laughs> the nice lady that's going to run the humor show didn't show up. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's what I came here for. Well, right away, the magic man goes, well, I'll teach that. I'll run that. And I'm kind of like, whoa, dude, there's, you know, are you, you know, I was like, and I, once again, I, I'm so mad that that's what I thought. I just thought this is going to suck. Because what, how, what does this guy know about making stories funny or telling me, making me learn something? So we, I go, well, the hot chick is going there, so... I'm going to go and keep working that anyway. At least I got that going. So I go, and I get in there. And the first thing that Art says, he knows I'm a storyteller. And he goes, I hate story slammers. And I'm like, well, this is going to be great. But he goes, you're going to learn a lot from me about, story, about putting humor in story slam. You're going to learn a lot about me. So I'm just kind of like, okay, well, I guess. And then that man, he, he, taught the, he taught a lot of small lessons about putting humor in your stories, all this kind of stuff. And I'm going like, who is this guy? And then he tells a story. And he nails the story. His story was so funny, and he was so spot on, no matter what his disability was. And this man is ravaged with his disability. And it just blew me away. I'm like, I can't believe this. This guy is hilarious. So the conference, that part of the conference gets over. So then we have the story slam part of it. And we all get up to tell our story slam story. And this is kind of cool because I'm still hitting on the girl that's really hot. And I'm not really, still not sure if she's single yet or not. And she gets up and she tells this story. This is no lie. She tells this story, this great story about how her, I believe it was her ex-husband, that they were making love this one night and he died of a heart attack. So here I got this hot girl who's my age and she fucked a guy to death. Are you kidding me? That's worth $2 right there. I'm going like, wow, this is amazing. I got to know more about this lady. 
Unfortunately, that part of the story ends because she is she is in a relationship, and I did find this out. But she's a very nice, and she is really good looking, and she's a great storyteller. And her name is Tracy Chipman. And if you ever get a chance to see her stories, please check her out. But anyway, so the magic man then. I have to tell my story, and my story's a funny story, which I told at the Madison Story Slam one time about sledding down a hill and almost getting run over by some elk. So it's a humorous story, and I gotta tell it to Art, the, the humor guy, and I'm freaking out. But I tell the story and I nail it, and Art is just peeing in his pants laughing. So we get to the end of the night, and he comes up and he's telling me how great of a storyteller I am and all this. And we're actually hugging and crying a little bit. And I was like, this is so cool. Because I find out that Art has Parkinson's disease. And he's totally ravaged by Parkinson's. But what I found out was, is the man's name is Arthur... Arthur... Baudry or something like that. He's actually a storytelling professor. He was at the uh, 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 UW School of Arts for many years as a storytelling teacher, and he also taught, uh, taught origami. And his story was about how origami used to really settle him down and how he was a little bit sad about because of the Parkinson's, his storytelling and his origami wasn't as, as good as it used to be. But he gave me this cool thing that he made. He gave me this piece of origami which is just amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, this thing is so cool. It's held together. Not one piece of tape is on this thing. And he made this, and he gave it to me, and he told me he wanted me to have it. And I was like, that's amazing. So, and I said to him, I said, well, you're not still fucking doing, oops. You're still not doing that origami. And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, I can still do it. He said, it really relaxes me for my, and I said, well, you can't still do that. And he says, yeah, I can. And he picks up this napkin, and he starts folding it. And I'm sitting there watching this man right before my eyes doing this. And I go, he's not doing this. His hands are like this. He can't, he can't really function and fold like a normal person, but he's doing it. And I'm watching him do it, and I go, he ain't doing it. And he's doing it. And this is what he made me. He made me this little origami piece right before my eyes. The man was so ravaged with Parkinson's, but yet he made it right before my eyes and I couldn't believe it. And he told me he wanted to have me to have it and I carry it with me all the time, especially the story slams. So really, story slams for me are a lesson, you know, and lessons learned. And I learned a very valuable one that don't just judge somebody, you know, by your first impression of them. Really get to know them. And fuck all of you. Here's what I thank you, Marty. Here's what I love about Marty. He pulled out that little origami swan. He's like, it's so precious to me. I carry it everywhere, and it's great. And then he just threw it. <laughs> it's not a piece of meat, Marty. Uh, our next storyteller has told many stories at Story Slam, and they're always wonderful. Please put your hands together for Shauna Youngdahl. Good? Oh, Marty, I don't have cash on me. This isn't going to work out to anyone's benefit. Ah, uh, fuck. Um. <laughs> Origami. Imagination. Um, so I just want to ask, everyone's answer is going to be yes, because it applies to everyone, but have we ever had one of those years where Suddenly everything starts to kind of come together for us and everything seems to come and we have hope suddenly in our lives. But then, no, <laughs> thanks Mel, outlier right there. Maybe it'll come one day for you or not. But then it's like all of a sudden, like the outer world suddenly hears you like kind of having hope in your life for once and then so it's like fudge you and starts to dump all over your happiness and immediate success. In 2014, I had just graduated with honors from my undergraduate school. And I'd been accepted to graduate school, and I'd also gotten a teaching assistantship with it. Now, all of this was really cool for me because I had dreams of becoming a research professor, which, if you don't know, is one of the saddest dreams you could ever have. <laughs> 
And this is coming from someone who almost got kicked out of high school and who failed her first year of college and also drew penises all over someone's English grade assignment. So I have been on the up and up right here. So in 2014, I had graduated with honors from my undergraduate school. I got accepted into grad school. I got a teaching assistantship. And I got diagnosed with cancer. Fuck! If anyone has any dollars, throw that shit in there. It was one of those times when I had gone to the doctor, and that was my first mistake. I went to the doctor. It was one of those yearly physical exams where they swab me, I scream, they give me drugs, and then I leave. But then the doctor called me back a week later and said, Shauna, your test results came back abnormal, and you need to come back for a follow-up. Then I went back, and the doctor said, this is just a follow-up exam. All of these things are pretty regular. These are very normal. Patients typically don't have to worry about these things. You don't have to think about anything more so than what we have to do. We just have to do this biopsy to rule out cancer. 99% of the times, they don't have cancer. Oh, holy fuck, Shauna, you have cancer. And this all came on the heels of me starting what was supposed to be my life. What was supposed to be my hopes and my dreams and everything that I thought was out of reach finally coming together. That whole summer leading up to grad school, everything started to crumble. Now the very first day of school was also coincidentally my very first day in my oncologist office. And what made it even more exciting was that my oncologist's office was in Illinois and school was in Wisconsin. So at 8 a.m., I was sitting in my oncologist's office being shown a diagram of what a healthy cervix looks like and what mine looked like, which looked like it had been smoking out of a pipe for the last 500 years. And then as soon as that ended, I was on my way back to Wisconsin. And on that car ride, all I remember is that I ended up sobbing into a bag of off-brand white cheddar goldfish and listening to George Michael, which was a very philosophical and existential moment for me. As soon as I got back to school, I was sitting in a giant lecture hall with all of my incoming students. It was supposed to be a meet and greet moment, but I couldn't look any of them in the eyes. Because as I was sitting there, all I kept thinking about was all the cancer that was flowing through my veins. And if I was going to greet all of them, I'd be saying, hi, my name is Shauna, I'm your teacher, I have cancer, I'm disgusting. And then later on that evening when I'm sitting down as a student in my very first grad school class, which should have been one of the most exciting moments of my life, I'm looking at the syllabus, hell yeah, syllabus day, looking at all the assignments that I have to do, and the teachers droning on all about them. And I'm thinking, why do I have to look at all of these assignments and learn about them when I might not even be alive when the time that they're going to be due? So when I got home later that evening, I sat down at my dinner table and I really thought about it for a moment. And I thought, you know, here are my hopes and here are my dreams. But am I really supposed to be here right now? Like this is everything that I've always wanted to do, but here is cancer right staring at me in the face. This is telling me that I don't belong here right now. I am in a state that I know nobody in. I am in a program that I don't even think that I'm gonna be able to accomplish. I know no one here. I can't talk to anybody here. I am facing my mortality head on that's basically saying I should not be here right now. I am out of place. I don't know where I am. I'm completely lost. Everything is confusing to me. I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to focus? How am I supposed to do this huge life challenge things when I have this huge life or death challenge thing glaring at me in the face? I can't do this. I'm not supposed to be doing this. This is obviously my life telling me I'm not supposed to have a future. I need to quit. I need to go back home. I need to stop everything and I need this to be over. I'm obviously not meant to be doing this right now. So I made the decision that I was going to drop out of school and I told my family and they said, yeah, that makes sense. Cancer's a lot. You can't focus on homework, but I love homework. So the next day I returned to school, but 
the nerves took over and I couldn't do it. And then the next week came and I had everything prepared to leave when I was sitting in my office hours and a student came in. Now I don't think she actually knew my name and I don't, I didn't know her name. That shit takes a while, you have like 10,000 students. And she came up to me and she sat down, she started talking. And it was small talk at first and hooray for small talk. But then she finally got to the point of what she wanted to say. She said, Shauna, this, this has been a really tough summer for me. My grandma just passed away and she was the most important person in my life. And my parents are also going through a divorce right now. But I just wanna tell you with everything on my plate, I'm gonna do my best. I wanna succeed in your class even though I hate your class. I taught public speaking, everybody hates my class. And she said, if there's anything that I can do that you can help me with, I would really appreciate it. And I told her, you know, you being here right now is you already winning. So then I went home later on that day and I realized, you know what? Anything is going to happen in your life. Yeah, I have cancer right now. But is that going to win? I want to win. I don't want anything to make me the loser in life. I came here to focus on my dreams and my future, and I'm not going to lose this battle that easily. So I made the decision right then and there that I'm gonna stay and I'm gonna work and I'm gonna win. I'm not the loser, I did not lose this. I ended up sticking it out. I graduated with honors again, but did not join the honor society because that cost $600. <laughs> the cancer is gone for now. But I just wanna say it's one of those life moments where you are faced with all these external bullshit coming at you. Just take a moment and realize what you want to do and what you need to do. And you are always going to be the winner. And also, fuck cancer. Thanks. I think we can all agree with Shauna's sentiments there at the end. Indeed. All right, that's going to do it for us on Madison Story Slam today. Hope you had a good time listening to those stories. I think they were fantastic. We had such a good time at Rabinia Courtyard. We want to go there again, and it's in the works that we will have another Story Slam there at some point. And uh, you should come because it's tons of fun. Hey, our next Story Slam event is Saturday, September 15th at the Wilmar Center in Madison, Wisconsin. You should come, and uh, the theme is transformation and we want stories based on that theme so come here or tell great stories have a good time with us and one last plug for the gofundme we are trying to bring story slam live to the internet we want to do video live streaming of all of our events and so we're doing a gofundme because we need some help purchasing the equipment we need to raise $2,500 so far you guys have been so awesome and helped us raise a few hundred yeah but if you can't help, please go share the link to it. But if you can help, please go donate some money to it. If you believe in this community and you believe in what it's doing, the website is gofundme.com slash storyslamlive. Your help, it would be much appreciated. Anything that you can do, we appreciate it. And as always, I love you.